And I think in terms of the vision, I mean, there's a lot, as you said, there's been a lot of skepticism and there's been a lot of criticism and what have you. Um, And, you know, I frequently, if I'm outside the kingdom, you know, I have people talking to me about this and they will say to me, well, what about this program? Do you think it's going to succeed? And what about this? Is it going to succeed? And is this part of the vision going to succeed, et cetera, et cetera? And, you know, my response to them is that actually you've got the wrong end of the stick here because what you're talking about are specific national transformation program projects. You're not talking about the vision. The vision is precisely that, a vision, and it's intangible, yes? And therefore, if you look at Saudi Arabia today and you ask yourself, has the vision succeeded? The answer is yes, it has already succeeded. This is the 966, Richard, our 30th episode. Well done, sir. Mabruk. Mabruk to you. And, you know, we should take a moment to recognize the extraordinary technical work you're doing on these things. So if anybody, if you've seen, anybody's seen these, obviously the audio is pretty, but the video is gorgeous. And those are production values from one Mr. Lucian Ziegler. Well, thank and, you so uh, much, sir. <laughs> it's, no, it, it really shows. And, uh, you know, we have a strategy here and we have, a, you know, some ideas about how we want to take it. We're not all the way, all the way there, but th- behind the scenes is, is your magic and it's, it's showing. It looks great. Thank you very much. We make a great team. We're a lean team and we've got an awesome <laughs> show today. Right. <laughs> um, we've actually got a lot to get to here this week. We'll be discussing, uh, well, what many are wondering now, where is U.S. shale as gas prices rise? We'll talk about some more progress for Saudi women and a rainy season wadi full of other topics. Um, our main segment today will be uh, we have a just the brilliant Dr. Mark Thompson on the show with us. He's written extensively on Saudi Arabia, including his latest book entitled Being Young Male in Saudi. He's also head of the socioeconomic program at King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. Mark will join us in a bit from just a short 12 hour flight away in Riyadh. Um, and so thanks to all of you for being here as well. For those of you who are new and Richard, we are getting a lot of new folks listening to us each week, which is awesome. Subscribe to us, please. This makes the delivery of the show automatic to your device and doesn't cost a thing. Just helps us a little bit. Shukran to everybody. Richard, let's get started. What's your one big thing this week? Okay, I'm I'm taking a big swing here. Please be patient. Um, the question is, where is U.S. shale? Uh, I'd have been happy to avoid this topic. It's broad and complex. Also, as I've stated many times on this show, I am not an oil expert. However, I felt like I needed to understand it better myself. So here goes. All right. So, so things we know. One, U.S. shale oil production transformed global energy markets when it helped U.S. oil production go from just under 4 million barrels per day in September 2008 to 13.1 million barrels per day in February 2020. Two, despite rapid depletion rates, shale oil production is cheaper and faster to bring online than traditional methods of oil production. Three, Thus, by 2014, U.S. oil, specifically shale oil, was widely used as the swing producer, a role OPEC and specifically Saudi Arabia had held for decades. Four, as I've said on this show, by 2014, U.S. shale oil set the ceiling for global oil prices, leaving OPEC to try and maintain the floor as best it could. So, with oil prices currently about $130 a barrel going up, U.S. gas prices over $4 a gallon, inflation racing, uh, Russian oil imports are embargoed in the U.S. and, and shortly will be in the U.K. 
Biden administration is imploring Saudi Arabia and the UAE to increase production, negotiating with Venezuela to get their sanctioned oil back online, and musing about the 103 million barrels of oil that Iran has in storage, waiting to be released if a new JCPO agreement is reached. Joe Biden himself recently declared that U.S. shale producers, quote, have 9,000 permits to drill now. They can be drilling right now, yesterday, last week, last year. Joe was pretty adamant about this. Um, so U.S. shale is surely barging through the door any moment, right? Uh, no. <laughs> U.S. <laughs> this is, you know, and at the end I'll get to two macro thoughts that I think are useful in, in looking at all this. So U U.S. oil production is up. U.S. production was almost 11.6 million barrels a day in December, up from a low of 9.7 million barrels per day in February of 2021. The number of American oil rigs have increased steadily since July 2020, when the country reached a low of 172. Currently, 519 rigs are recorded uh, last week, which was up from 480 rigs the first week of the year. Uh, just by comparison, by the way, the U.S. The United States had more than 800 rigs in the field in 2019. So the 519 right now, even though it's up, is still down from previous highs. Still, U.S. shale won't be saving the day anytime soon. Why? All right. One, the oil price crash in 2024 shale exploration and production companies to drastically cut their capital programs and lay down rigs. Scott Sheffield, CEO of Pioneer Natural Resources, one of the leading shale oil companies, confirms that, quote, we have shortages of labor, sand, and equipment, and, if, and it is going to take a good 18 months just to ramp it up. If it is a long-term problem, U.S. shale can respond and help the world, but it's going to take time and lots of caveats. Uh, Amos Hochstein, uh, the U.S. State Department's energy envoy, by the way, who's made some trips to Saudi, um, said that in recent meetings and phone calls with oil companies, executives indicated that federal government has little to do with their difficulties lifting output. Quote, I asked most of them, is there anything you need from the administration to increase production? And they said, no, unless you can help me with sand or labor or other supply chains. Two, shareholders of publicly traded oil and gas companies are demanding that production growth take a backseat to more cash back to shareholders through dividends and buybacks after a decade of over, overspending burned investors. Aaron Weiss, Deputy Director of the Center for Western Priorities, quotes, the energy industry doesn't have a permitting problem. It has a financing problem. Uh, lenders also have become very wary, more wary of funding oil-related ventures as environmental, social, and government's ideas catch on in financial circles are still unwilling to give money to most of the nation's uh, uh, oil service companies, oil field service companies or to smaller oil producers that want to expand their operations. Um, so, and we know that. We've talked about it before. So I'm going to close with two macro observations that are interesting because it, it sort of talks about sales role, as I said, you know, it had become the swing producer. You know, here we are in a crisis. It's not producing. I always thought that, you know, one of the advantages of U.S. shale was agnostic. It's not political. It's sort of specifically related to uh, it's price sensitive. Well, it's not price sensitive. And we see there's all sorts of reasons why it's not coming online to the scale we want. But here's going forward. John Hess, so this is three. John Hess, Chief, Chief Executive of Hess Corporation, recently made a fascinating point when he noted that U.S. shale is no longer the world's swing supplier as the business has matured. Shale companies have a limited remaining inventory of drilling locations following a decade of exploiting shale rock, he said. Quote, it's a 10-year-old business. 
There's only about a 10-year inventory of shale drilling locations left, maybe 15, Mr. Hess said. People are going to be more judicious about how they accelerate in this emergency situation. This is fascinating to me. So what he's saying basically is it's going to run out. And uh, you know, and and hope, and, and maybe it'll run out by the time that you know we we kind of, the world globe's weaned itself on on uh, fossil fuels off of fossil fuels. But this is an interesting point when you look at it from the Saudi perspective. Four, Daniel Ramey, an economist who studies the industry and resources for the future, concludes that in the medium to long term, the best thing the United States can do for energy security is reduce its consumption of fossil fuels, limiting, limiting exposures to volatile swings in crude prices, and freeing up more oil and gas to be shipped to allied countries. He said, quote, As long as we use oil, we are dependent on every other country in the world. It includes Saudi Arabia and Russia. It also includes major consumers like China and India, because when their consumption goes up, prices go up for us. Consequently, Ramey points out, quote, there is no energy independence when it comes to global oil, mar global oil markets, unquote. So I just thought this was extremely interesting when I got into this. I, I understand the sort of operational logistics uh, difficulties in, in bringing it back online, but these bigger picture issues and, you know, talking about there's, a, there's, a, there's an end date for U.S. shale. I hadn't really thought about this. And that then, is, yeah, sorry, please. And then the final, you know, the, 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 it's, it's sort of an obvious statement and because energy independence has been a holy grail for so many people in so many countries, but particularly the U.S. And the reality is there's no such thing. So, it, that, so first of all, really excited that you chose this topic this week, and, and especially since we've been doing a lot on oil in recent weeks. And you know, after Ukraine, we've had some great interviews with energy experts. Uh, Kate Durian, former Reuters reporter, we had Adam Saminsky on from Capsark. We've we've talked a lot about energy, but it's sort of like we are taking a chance now to sort of re look at America as an energy producer and. With all that's going on in Ukraine right now, what's interesting as well to me is the first question that family members and friends ask me is, hey, is Saudi Arabia going to produce more oil so that the price of my gasoline doesn't go up? And the answer to that is it really, truly is not that simple at all. And as we discussed, Richard, in previous episodes, 70 percent to I think actually 80 percent of Saudi crude goes to Asia. So there's your answer. Right. If they turn the spigot on the proverbial spigot, more oil would go to Asia. But it, it isn't even about that. It's about the fact that the United States does produce a lot of oil, but these are different types of oil of different grades. And the oil that we need and the refineries we have here are importing oil from around the world of a different type of grade that they are meant to refine. I, do I have that correct? Yeah. And, and, and I would add, in terms of when you get down to the nitty gritty, so replacing the, the embargoed Russian oil, it's not a lot, you know, in terms of all Russian, uh, Russian oil and, and, and petroleum products, it's, you know, about 700,000 barrels a day. Actual crude is like 200,000 barrels a day. So it's not a lot. And, and when you look at, when you look at, say, for example, at, at uh, U.S. shale, which at, has proved capacity of 13 million barrels per day, you know, oh, we can make that up simply. But almost all that Russian oil goes to the coast. Mm -hmm. East Coast, West Coast. Why? Well, because you know there's a, there's a, a regulation in the U.S. that tankers, tanker size uh, has to be limited if you're transporting fuels from port to U.S. port, U.S. port to U.S. port. So you know there's not the super tankers that can do it. So consequently, 
for oil producers and refiners and, and shippers, it doesn't make sense. They lose money if they put it in a ship. So, so they don't, and, and they don't have pipelines to the East Coast and the West Coast. So this, this uh, Russian oil typically has been shipped into the, you know, L.A. or the East Coast. Um, and, you know, so replacing it, it isn't even as simple as, oh, yeah, we have, we can replace it here from, from Texas because it, it, there's no pipeline from there to, to California or to the, to the Northeast that can do it. And the, the shipping, it doesn't make economic sense. So there's always, you know, there's always these details, just like you say, and your friends who say, well, just, you know, they just turn on more oil and we'll be okay. It's just never that simple. Well, it's really interesting, too, because, I mean, the other question that I get is, and I'm Richard, I'm sure you get this all the time, is, wow, the Saudis must be stoked that oil is now up at $130 a barrel or $110 a barrel. That means that they have a lot more money. And in reality, I mean, yes, that's very true in the short term. But the reality is every time oil gets that high, Americans, American politicians, really everyone around the world says, we. I think it may be time for us to rethink our energy mix here. But those are things that in the long term erode demand for crude oil. So every time we have this rethink of what's going on, that's essentially why Saudi Arabia says, well, we are a responsible producer along with OPEC and OPEC plus. We don't want the price of oil to be too low, but we also don't want it to be too high, um, which is interesting. And then the second thing that I would just add to this, and this was a really again, this is a really great um, piece from you. But, um, you know, are we going to invest the tens of billions of dollars, maybe even more than that needed to completely revamp how America produces and refines and um, distributes oil? Or are we going to take that money and invest it in clean energy and other technologies that are more longer term? And I think that the answer depends on the price of oil in the you know medium to long term. I mean, if two to three months from now we're still here with really high oil prices, maybe we do a little bit of both. The better spending of money is for the long term solution to become less dependent, not just on foreign oil, but on any oil. And so that's going to be the next policy challenge facing Congress. This is just such a fascinating space right now. And there's so much going on. Um, it, it was really great because uh, um, it was, it was just really cool to look at sort of where America does import oil from. 52% mm -hmm. of it is from Canada. 11% right. comes from Mexico. So there you go. So, the, so I mean, 63% of imports are from Canada and Mexico. And then 11% are from OPEC nations. And 7% of that comes from Saudi Arabia. Right. So, I mean, for the Saudis to turn on the spigot, I mean, what are they going to do? You know, give us a little bit more. It just doesn't really work that way. And that's what's so difficult about all of this. I think those are good points, and and uh, you know you might add on the Ukraine situation when you essentially are seeing a major economy de decoupling from the global economy, and having you know ramifications uh, throughout the significant potential reduction in economic output, which means less demand for energy. So the Saudis don't like any of this. Mm -hmm. You know the the high price, yeah, okay. They're going to benefit from it. Um, but it's not their preferred. It's not their preferred situation. They'd like to get to a little more level status quo. That's less, much less volatile. And Richard, you and I are very interested in sort of how the public sees problems. I mean, it's it's just like because it's a great barometer about what's going to happen in the situation in Ukraine. We sort of on last week's episode, we were sort of wondering like where the U.S. would come down, where the U.S. Uh, American attitudes would come down on the on the war in Ukraine and. Since then, um, Biden has banned Russian energy imports. And what was really interesting, we included this in uh, on our website, SUSTG.com, but a, a recent poll by Quinnipiac University, which 
which sort of took a you know the pulse of adults in the United States. And I thought, frankly, shocking to me was that seventy percent of them, seventy percent of U.S. adults said that they would be okay with higher gas prices if it meant sticking it to Russia, basically. And that's a it's really rare to find bipartisan consensus on really anything, and especially when it comes to economic bread and butter issues like gas prices. But that's a really high number. Um, and so that just shows you the sort of the support for American the American um, response to Russia's invasion in, in Ukraine, but also that Americans are sort of united on this and that they're willing to pay a little bit more at the pump as their way of supporting Ukraine. I thought that that was absolutely fascinating. It was it was encouraging, and and hopefully it will uh, sustain. and And I won't only modify. I know you were you're kidding about sticking to Russia. I mean, I think Americans take are heartened by however you perceive this situation. But I think most Americans feel like we're on the right side. We're on the right side of the law. We're on the right side of um, uh, responsible behavior, trying to uh, maintain a global system that works for everybody. So, and I'll be honest with you, I don't think Americans have felt like they've been on the right side for a, a while. It's not that they haven't supported things or they don't understand, but I don't, you know, I don't think many Americans, I think a lot of Americans weren't quite sure what to think about our invasion of Iraq. And certainly the, the 20 year uh, struggle in, in to occupy and re reshape Afghanistan was a, was a divisive issue. So. I mean, as, speaking as an American, I feel better about this. I think we're doing. I think we're doing the right thing, and and that uh, it's an important thing for us to do, along with our allies in in Europe. So I think that feeds into a willingness to take it on the chin with with regard to inflation and gas prices, uh, and I hope it sustains. Like I said. So if I could ask you just sort of um, to forecast here, what you think might be next? Um, let's in the Ukraine. No, no, no. I'm sorry. In, in for the U.S. energy industry and and U.S. The, the, basically, how do do you think this is a tipping point for the United States to invest and radically change our energy policy? Like, do you think that this is the impetus, or do you think this will be short lived, and then in a few weeks we'll you know we'll just be back to the status quo? I have been surprised, and um, I think a lot of people have been surprised. Uh, maybe if you're an expert, you knew this coming. I've been amazed that 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 shale oil has continued to sit, sit on the sidelines for the most part. And what you what you overlook, I think you overlook the the sheer logistics of getting something back online, the difficulty of it. But you also overlook the financial aspect of it, where they're being constrained by their shareholders and their investors saying. I, you know, your first job, your first responsibility to us is to make money. It's not to to go into debt to build, to do you know drill more wells. So so that's that's I don't I don't know. I guess folks saw that coming, but in a crisis, I thought maybe that would be overrun pretty quickly, and it's not. Um, the other thing is, is is I think over time shale is running shale will run into more problems, and by that I mean. Already in the Permian and in, in, in uh, certain parts of Texas, um, there's been uh, local mandates and regulations against uh, how much how much fluid and sand and, and water can be used. So that's an extra cost that's incurred. What we've seen coming out of CLP 26 at the end of last year is uh, a significant, uh, significantly increased attention to the consequences of methane, which is a significant emission from shale oil. So I think a lot of these things, 
are going to conspire to maybe put a top on what we thought might be endless potential with, with uh, fracking. Uh, so I guess in answer to your question, I think it's got to, we've got to move into other alternative energies and, and clean energies because, uh, as, as I said, and this is what was stunning to me about this comment by John Hess, of Hess, who would know, mm-hmm. saying we've got a time, we've got a, 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 a sell-by date here. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it may be 10 years, it may be 15 years. And to me, you're basically saying, look, the shale's not going to get us a fuel on its own. We've got to start doing that now. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, to think about the European markets. I mean, this was a big wake-up call for them. We're seeing Europe, uh, Western European countries start to come up with some vague plans to get themselves off Russian energy. Um, I mean, Germany, obviously canceling the Nord Stream 2 or at least shelving the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline the UK saying that it will phase out imports from Russia it just it's just I feel like there's a sea change happening there but with with but here it's sort of hard to forecast it involves sort of a, a sustained and patient approach to policy making that you know is maybe easy and have momentum now but a few weeks or months from now depending on how the situation goes may be more difficult last thing I just want to add to this is these calls that are coming um, in from the United States, criticism of President Biden, for example, of not having warm enough relationships with uh, Saudi Arabia or you know the UAE, such that those countries would step up and say, no, 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 we, we're, we're going to do whatever we can. We're, you know, we support this. It's very interesting to think about Saudi Arabia's role, and this is something we've talked about, and a point that you've made excellently um, on at least one other show. But Saudi Arabia you know, took a really hard decision in creating OPEC plus in 2016 by including the Russians. And they did that in part because, you know, the Russians really help set policy in the medium to long term. So for Saudi Arabia to just say, okay, yeah, you know what, we're going to cancel Russia and they're out that, you know, three to six to nine to 12 months from now, that's not this. It's not an easy decision for them to do because they've needed Russia to help act as one big coordinated body. So they don't want to throw that away and then have no, um, you know, control over the market at all down the road because of, you know, what's going on today. I don't know if you have a comment on that. It's just yeah. something that I kind of. I'd have two thoughts on that. One is Saudi Arabia, UAE, men of our traditional allies, including Israel, by the way, who, who has who has sort of uh, tried to, uh, you know, dance around this and, and triangulate uh, all feel like it's a multipolar world now. It's not, the U.S. is not the hegemon. It's U.S., China, and Russia, and they feel like they have to hedge their bets. And uh, and that's their right, and there's probably, a, a, you know, an assessment that they make, and, a, and they, they're doing that, and it's become very clear in this situation. So, you know, that's, that's Saudi Arabia's calculus is, is very complex, just as is India's and Israel's and uh, so many other countries. One of the great tragedies of this, I believe, um, you know, so it's easy to criticize, say, Germany. You know, I don't understand. Why did you give up nuclear energy? You know, and now they're scrambling to, to possibly, although they, there won't be time to do it. But why did you commit so much in that relationship with with uh, with Russia and in terms of your energy supplies and other countries in the region too. And part of it, I think, was aspirational. They wanted Russia to become part of the global community and a trusted member. 
And I think that's one of the tragedies of Putin's behavior is he's just, you know, we can't, it is now, Russia can no longer be trusted, if it ever could be. But, you know, under different leadership, you could have had a country, you could have had a situation where Russia worked very closely with, on energy issues and other issues with, with Europe. And that Russia, in, in, in the course of that, Russia was engaged in the global economy and, and, and enriched itself as well as the rest of the world. Uh, instead of this uh, confrontational situation, and Ukraine might have been a buffer, you know, if they'd have been, uh, you know, and I think people like Henry Kissinger and others always said it doesn't need to be one or the other, it can be a nice bridge. Uh, but uh, Putin has, has blown all that up, and I think in terms of, uh, say, the Saudis' calculus, it's troublesome because uh, at the end of this, Saudi, I mean, Russia not only, in the, not, Russia is not only dangerous right now, Putin's extremely dangerous right now, but whatever happens in the outcome, if we can avoid a nuclear war, and this, but Russia is going to be significantly reduced, significantly reduced. And, you know, it's, it's, its role as a, as a counterweight to, to the U.S. Uh, is going to be diminished. And I can honestly say, you know, if this goes on, and Russia is damaged as much as it might appear to be economically, it can end up being a satellite of China. You know, that's a, that's a huge statement, but you know, and it never is quite going to be because of their, their military prowess, but they could be so weakened, so hobbled, you know, their only benefactor is China. Which the U.S. definitely does not. On all this as well. Um, the, the, you know, what he's done is cataclysmic, and, it, and, and it's, it's going to have consequences we can't foresee. Yeah. Fascinating. Great one big thing, Richard. I almost don't even want to do mine thing. now because um, it's not going <laughs> to no. stack up to that. Please um, get us back to normality. This was, <laughs> this was like I said, I didn't want to do this, but I felt like I really need to just try to look at it so I can understand it a little better. Well, I'm glad you did, and I'm sure everybody watching um, is glad you did because was, I, I personally feel like I had a few questions answered by that. So um, <laughs> if I feel that way, hopefully others do as well. Um, but my one big thing this week, Richard, is a recent study by Uber in Saudi Arabia. And the headline from this study, we won't bury the lead here on the 966, and, and neither did Uber, is that female participation in the labor force in Saudi Arabia keeps climbing and is ahead of schedule for Vision 2030. And that's just awesome news. Really amazing, in fact. Between 2018 and 2021, female participation in the labor force grew from around 22% to almost 36%. The increase means that the country has met its Vision 2030 target of 30% female labor force participation almost 10 years ahead of schedule. But the study itself was commissioned to measure the four-year impact of Uber's Wusul program, which was designed to promote female participation in the workplace in Saudi Arabia by providing government-subsidized Uber rides to and from work. This is sort of what also caught my attention. I didn't know this program was going on, but it's really cool. The number of women benefiting from Wusul increased from 300 to around 13,000 in only the first year of operation. And by late last year, 2021, more than 120,000 women had used Wasul to make more than 20 million trips to and from their workplaces, largely via the Uber app. It's a pr uh, private-public collaboration, and it's Uber's largest subsidy program and one of Uber's largest government partnerships globally. Um, more is available on this study online, which was actually done by the management consultancy Roland Berger. So it's a beautiful presentation. Um, but I just thought that this was really cool, and you know, it's. What, what struck me too about it, and again, I won't stand on this too long, but 
it's not just that Saudi Arabia has opened up to women and given women more opportunities and allowed women to drive. Um, it's also actually taking steps to make that easier. If you're a woman and you're all of a sudden enabled to drive and get around, you know, this is an opportunity to, to get a new job that is maybe far away, but you know, you may not want to take that job if the commute is so long or is too expensive. And this is like a meaningful subsidy that actually has a socioeconomic impact. And I just think that that's, I think that's really cool. I, I tried to look and I couldn't find this statistic. Um, so if anybody knows, send us a tweet or send us an email at the 966podcast.com, um, 966podcast at gmail.com. I don't know what percentage of Uber drivers in Saudi Arabia are women. That was not in this study, but just fascinating stuff here. And and really cool that they have a program like this to make it easier for women to get their first job, to start going to work. I, I think that isn't, you just hit the nail right on the head when you talked about um, the mechanics of change. And there's the aspiration to get women in the workplace, but then there's the, the real life, how do you get women there? How do people get a ride and that sort of thing? And before I, the, my next comment, you, you, you said this is the largest public-private uh, initiative that Uber has? Yeah. In the, in the globe? In or, globally, yeah. See, that's remarkable. This is Saudi Arabia, freaking Saudi Arabia. And, and this, is, this is the scope of their ambition. But here's what I love. So that Wasul program is designed for people, women. Uh, there are women, you know, when you got the right to drive in 2018 and you had a job, you could go out and buy a new car. There are, there are plenty of families that could do that for their daughters or husbands for their wives or uh, women for themselves. Uh, but this program is specifically for women who make less than $2,100 a month. So it, it's, uh, it's really, I think, again, it's the mechanics of change. You can't just legislate, now women, you're equally employed. How do we get there? And this is helping them do exactly that. And it's, and it's, and it's uh, resulting in the extraordinary numbers you just said, you know, already 36%, the 20 million rides. Uh, this is a, a resounding success, but it's also uh, a testimony to thinking through how to make things happen and then acting to enable what is required to reach your goals. Uh, I just think it's a, I think it's a great story. The other thing that I would add to that that I think is really awesome and sort of emblematic of what Saudi Arabia is all about these days is that this isn't something where, you know, you you account for all your rides that you've taken over the month, you put it into a spreadsheet, you print it out, you mail it in slowly into the government, and then six months later, you get a check for whatever. This is like a, a feature built into Uber's app that just takes off 80% of your ride. Presumably Uber then just automatically bills the government or shares the shares the fee with the government. It's seamless, just like all these other innovations coming online in Saudi now that are not just new social to tools. They're actually, you know, tech driven and easy to use and user friendly so that so that that part of it is not an implement to using it. And and that was really cool. And actually, in this study, it's just a lot of it it's uses a lot of photos of the app and how, you know, all of us have used Uber booking a ride. It's just you select Wasul and your fare is significantly re reduced. So it's like all the stuff we talked about with Tawakana app and all that, it's just, you know, it's, it's amazing to see really. It's, it's, it's e-government that's working and you know, there's nothing more 
uh, encouraging and, and confidence building when you see something like this. Completely agreed. Okay, Richard, let's get to our awesome conversation with uh, Dr. Mark Thompson, um, who will be joining us here from Riyadh. We're talking now with Dr. Mark Thompson, Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Socioeconomics Program at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies and author of the book, Being Young Male and Saudi, Identity Politics in a Globalized Kingdom. Mark, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you very much. It's very my pleasure to be here. Mark, we're just delighted to have you. We, we talk regularly on this podcast about economic issues, social issues, and it's wonderful to have someone who actually knows what they're talking about on. <laughs> um, I mean, you've, you've immersed yourself as head of socioeconomics program at the King Faisal Center for Research in Islamic Studies, which I think most of our listeners and viewers know is, is a really a prestigious institution and well-regarded. Uh, you've, you've done a number of publications. Recently, you, uh, you have good jobs and bad jobs, employment attitudes, perceptions and priorities in Saudi Arabia. Um, you uh, published a very interesting book uh, called Being Young, Male, and Saudi, Identity and Politics in a Globalized Kingdom. And you have an upcoming publication, Governance and Domestic Policymaking in Saudi Arabia, Transforming Society, Economics, Politics, and Culture. Uh, these are fascinating issues to us. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing at, at, at King Faisal and, and maybe expand on your methodology? Because I, I was listening to your uh, a video of you talking about you know, all the surveys you did when you, when you wrote the Being Young, Male, and Saudi book. I'd love to understand what you're doing, what you're trying to get at, and how you're getting at it. Um, well, actually, you know, my, my research focus has remained the same, you know, over many, many years. And that is that, you know, I look at societal transformation. I look at the sort of the socioeconomic impact of what we've seen happening over the last couple of decades on young people in Saudi Arabia, because at the end of the day, you know, this is a very young kingdom. This is a very young population. These things impact them. And when you are in conversation with young Saudis of either gender and no matter, you know, all different parts of the kingdom, um, what they're concerned about, what they want to talk about, are, you know, they're not, they don't really want to talk about the high policy types things, although, of course, at the moment, Ukraine, of course, but, you know, in general, 95% of the time, they want to talk about jobs and they want to talk about careers. They want to talk about education. They want to talk about the pandemic. They want to talk about opportunities uh, and all those sort of um, topics that, that fall into, you know, what I often talk about is sort of the area of low politics, but actually they they, those are the things that impact everybody, you know, on people's everyday lives. Um, so I've been looking at these issues for you know many many years, and the you know thank you for mentioning those publications. I mean, those are only just sort of some of the more recent ones. Um, and I've been in Saudi Arabia now since uh, two thousand and one. Um, I think, you know, and I've worked for multiple institutions, not just the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. I mean, I was, uh, I taught politics at King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals for eight years. I was at the Saudi National Guard. I was at Prince Sultan University. I worked for IFRA, the Aramco project. And I actually started out in my first came to Saudi Arabia as a teacher for Saudi Arabian Airlines. So, King um, Fahad today. Uh, I mean, and, and my PhD in, uh, actually came about because of living in Saudi Arabia. 
uh, not because I read something in a library. Um, you know, and 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 so this is this so this is something that's been with me. You know, this is my journey, if you like, um, ever since I arrived in the kingdom, and of course. You know, you've mentioned the methodology. I mean, I mean, Saudi Arabia is um, one of the most, and always has been, regardless of the recent changes. Saudi Arabia has always been one of the most social societies on earth. I mean, you go to Raha, you go to the Majlis, you go to the Diwaniya, you go out with your friends, you go to weddings. You do, you know, it's a, it's, it's an incredibly social society where personal connections, friendships, and these things really, really matter. So. I have done work in the past, like, for example, my first book where I did extensive one-to-one interviews with about 120 people all across the kingdom. And for sort of the more recent um, sort of, I suppose, from about sort of 10 years ago, uh, the sort of work that only longer than that, actually, that I've done sort of with use. Um, yes, I, I do use surveys uh, from time to time, written surveys in Arabic, but actually I only use those uh, to support my main methodology, which is either one-to-one interviews or more often than not focus groups. So for example, being young male in Saudi, I did 55 focus groups all over the kingdom with people from all walks of life, all constituencies, um, and my focus, when I do my focus groups, I don't do them in an academic focus group setting. You know, I go to them, we sit in the Istiraha, we go to the desert, we sit on the beach, we sit in the park, we sit in the coffee shop, wherever they would normally be. Uh, and actually having the sort of conversations that they would normally be having anyway. Yes. So uh, I don't record. Uh, I never record anything because that automatically changes the the dynamic, you know. Uh, so I I just take copious notes <laughs> from the from these focus groups, and I end up with ninety thousand words of notes um, from fifty focus groups, which of course turned into the book. So you know, I, I understand that 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 it's really you know it's so important to have these personal connections to sit and talk to people because actually that's that's actually how people are saying the same thing you know it's not what happens in the workshop it's what you know over coffee over lunch right Right. yeah yeah uh, it's really nice to be back (laughs) (laughs) Uh, this as well of course well this has been a quite a tool and it's been a wonderful thing especially for our purposes because we want to get so you know we want it to be a platform for Saudi and non-Saudi experts, but we really yeah. want it to be a platform for folks who are in Saudi and uh, as we move along, more and more younger people. Yeah, great. And well, I can do with that if you if you know you know if you need any assistance with you know finding younger people, younger Saudis who'd be willing to. Yep, yeah, you know I I know so many. So yes, uh, an emphatic yes because. Um, I've been in and out, you know, I've been dealing with Saudi Arabia for 30 years and, and I've worked with uh, private sector groups and we continue to work with a private sector group that's associated with the uh, Federation of Saudi Chambers. And, yes. and there is nothing more compelling than a Saudi speaking about themselves in Saudi Arabia. Absolutely. Now, this is really, and, and you know, one of the things I try and do with my work, my papers, my books and things is, is to actually, you know, sort of be a conduit, as it were, for these voices. You know, um, to you know, to voices that otherwise don't get heard because they're not elites, because you know they didn't get a PhD from Harvard, or because they, you know, they left school and you know and, and went straight into employment. But the, but you know, their voices are 
as important as anybody else's, you know? Um, and, and my work, that's what I try and do with my work. Um, agreed. And let me just forewarn you right now, because uh, I want to be polite. One of the first emails, you know, communications after we're done with this is me coming to you and saying, Mark, yes, who, do you, who would you recommend we get in touch with to talk to? Yeah, sure. No problem. <laughs> yeah. a lot of, there's a lot of very interesting people who are not on the list, if you know what I mean, mm -hmm. because, yeah, and, you know, but they're, they're young, they're up and coming, they're, you know, they're starting to mark in their own particular sectors or their fields and, um, and, you know, incredibly, you know, incredibly interesting people and who, and, and so, no, I can definitely, you know, give you, you know, quite a lot of names of people. Uh, Excellent. Ma male and female, of course. That's it. Yeah, that's even better. And this one of the, this format we found, uh, and we've been doing, we've been hacking away at the relationship for, you know, a long time and we have a well-respected newsletter, but moving into the, this format, um, we found a real thirst for it. I mean, it's a, yeah. what we're doing is is fairly unique. You know, it's informal, but it's informed, and we, you know, drawing from a lot of yeah. different expertise. So there's nothing else out there really like that, and we want to keep going with um, uh, sharing voices, just like you said. Yes. That otherwise, wouldn't be heard. No, exactly. And I think you know, this is. I mean, this is the silver lining to the pandemic in a way. Is that you know, we have like us at the center. You know, we at the number of events and the number of of lectures and seminars and whatever that we do is increased exponentially because you know we've moved right. a lot of time and we're keeping it online of course yeah. we're back in person but we're also keeping this other side that we were sort of forced to do because of the pandemic and <laughs> there's you know? and there's very few uh saudi arabia is a very like welcoming in-person culture yes. you know yes. so there yeah so it's very interesting to see i'm sure everybody there is racing to just get back and hang out with each other oh uh, i mean fortunately that you know the pandemic has did not affect Saudi Arabia as badly as many other places. Of course, the government, you know, you know, their government response to the pandemic was was very, very good. Um, um, the the tech is fantastic, and you know, the government messaging was very clear. You know, as somebody who comes from a country where there was no government messaging, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so you know, I mean, hello. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. We yeah. we we regularly express our envy. Well, no, I mean, you know, this is, you know, there is no doubt, you know, that there is no doubt that they handled this extremely well. But then, of course, they had had coronavirus in 2012 and 2015 with MERS. And also, extremely importantly, they have had every year. Mm -hmm. And every year, the Ministry of Health and everybody are constantly monitoring who's coming in from where. I remember when Ebola was the big problem, you know, right. in West. And they were so, the authorities here were so concerned that something could come in at Hajj, you know. So, so because of that awareness, and I think that awareness was so important, they realized, you know, very early on that, wait, this is serious, you know, and we have to deal with that seriously. It was, it was Saudi Arabia is uniquely well positioned. I mean, it, it, when you look at the, and Lucia and I have talked about this on previous episodes, if when you look at the some of the components that were necessary to successfully deal with the pandemic, you know, it, it's helpful to have an authoritarian government. It's it's helpful to have the, the means, financial means. It's yeah. really helpful to have that, just as you say, that experience and the, yeah. and the habit of following the science. Yes. 
and and it's also they they were very disciplined and rigorous and they and they stuck it through so i mean they really brought everything you could possibly yeah. bring be very lucky to have a very competent minister of health when it started right you know it was a competent minister had been a minister in the other portfolios who is highly respected within you know saudi society and across the side saudi society who also knows how to communicate which i think we knew uh we know dr taufik from uh, when he was minister of commerce and he's a capable capable guy he is and he is and he's a very approachable person and he's a very straightforward person as well yeah. so i think you know to have somebody like him you know in that position was 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 really important and the and the fact that you know the king basically said to him whatever you want you know was there was, you go was, and and what's very i mean i think what really said it all was that the first person to be vaccinated live on television on social media and all of those things was not the king was not the crown prince it was dr taufik there you go yes uh, you know that's what i mean they've met they got the messaging right here they and they got the tech right you know um uh and and i think that even though people grumbled about certainly the you know, the, the curfew in 2020, which was, of course, was, as you know, was extremely strict. Uh, and even and even though people grumbled about it at the time, you know, in retrospect, of course, you know, there's a huge realization that actually, you know, that that really was the right thing to do. Mm. We're hoping to have um, uh, we've already got him as a spokesperson and sort of the head mm. researcher over at the Saudi Data and AI Agency, you know, who developed Tabakalna. Excellent. Uh, and uh, and to talk about that because as you say, yeah. I mean this is this is one of the one of the benefits that came along. It's it's you know it's something that's like Absher. It's like everyday life for a Saudi or yeah. for anybody there. Tawakalna, of course, now has 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 now has a completely different role from just being you know a coronavirus COVID application. Now you have your Igama, your driving license. You know everything is on Tawakalna now. Right. Um, and you know the majority of people actually are saying well this is great because actually it just makes life so much easier for everyone <laughs> replaces <laughs> yeah. the wallet and the yeah <laughs> yeah seriously i think i think marja payment scheme is the next thing to go on mm. nice so i heard yesterday well yes let me cut in here, guys. I'm just going to do a quick introduction to you, Mark, and then Great. we'll just jump right back into the conversation because this is all good. We want to include as much of it as we can. And then so the way this will work is I'll just do a short introduction and then Richard's going to follow up to it and then we can just talk. And um, it's a podcast, so it, you know whatever comes out will be what we use. So we'll just go with that. Great. Um, Richard, and you are, are you ready and recording on your side as well? I am recording. Okay, cool. We're talking now with Dr. Mark Thompson, Senior Research Fellow and Head of the Socioeconomics Program at the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies and author of the book, Being Young Male in Saudi, Identity Politics in a Globalized Kingdom. Mark, thanks so much for joining us this week. Thank you very much. It's very my pleasure to be here. Mark, we're just delighted to have you. We, we talk regularly on this podcast about economic issues, social issues, and it's wonderful to have someone who actually knows what they're talking about on. <laughs> um, I mean, you've, you've immersed yourself as head of socioeconomics program at the King Faisal Center for Research Islamic Study, which I think most of our listeners and viewers know is, is a really a prestigious institution and well-regarded. 
you've you've done a number of publications recently. You uh, you have good jobs and bad jobs, employment attitudes, perceptions, and priorities in Saudi Arabia. Um, you uh, published a very interesting book uh, called "Being Young, Male, and Saudi: Identity and Politics in a Globalized Kingdom." And you have an upcoming publication, Governance and Domestic Policymaking in Saudi Arabia, Transforming Society, Economics, Politics, and Culture. Uh, these are fascinating issues to us. Can you talk a little bit about what you're doing at, at, at King Faisal and, and maybe expand on your methodology? Because I, I was listening to your uh, a video of you talking about you know, all the surveys you did when you, when you wrote the Being Young, Male, and Saudi book. I'd love to understand what you're doing, what you're trying to get at, and how you're getting at it. Um, well, actually, you know, my my research focus has remained the same, you know, over many, many years. And that is that, you know, I look at societal transformation. I look at the sort of the socioeconomic impact of what we've seen happening over the last couple of decades on young people in Saudi Arabia, because at the end of the day, you know, this is a very young kingdom. This is a very young population. These things impact them. And when you are in conversation with young Saudis of either gender and no matter you know, all different parts of the kingdom um what they're concerned about what they want to talk about are you know they're not they don't really want to talk about the high policy type things although of course at the moment ukraine of course but you know in general 95 percent of the time they want to talk about jobs and they want to talk about careers they want to talk about education they want to talk about the pandemic they want to talk about opportunities uh, and all those sort of um topics that that fall into you know what I often talk about is sort of the area of low politics but actually they they those are the things that impact everybody you know on people's everyday lives um so I've been looking at these issues for you know many many years and the you know thank you for mentioning those publications I mean those are only just sort of some of the more recent ones um and I've been in Saudi Arabia now since uh, 2001 um and I think, you know, and I've worked for multiple institutions, not just the King Faisal Center for Research and Islamic Studies. I mean, I was, uh, I taught politics at King Fahad University of Petroleum Minerals for eight years. I was at the Saudi National Guard. I was at the Sultan University. I worked for IFRA, the Aramco project. And I actually started out hmm. in my first came to Saudi Arabia as a teacher for Saudi Arabian Airlines. So, um, <laughs> King Fahad today. Uh, I mean, and, and my PhD in, uh, actually came about because of living in Saudi Arabia, uh, not because I read something in a library, um, you know, and, and, and so this is this. So this is something that's been with me. You know, this is my journey, if you like, um, ever since I arrived in the kingdom. And of course, you know, you've mentioned the methodology. I mean, I mean, Saudi Arabia is um, one of the most and always has been, regardless of the recent changes, Saudi Arabia has always been one of the most social societies on earth. I mean, you go you go to the majlis, you go to the divinia, you go out with your friends, you go to weddings, you do, you know, it's a it's it's an incredibly social society where personal connections, friendships and these things really, really matter. So I have done work in the past, like, for example, my first book where I did extensive one-to-one -one interviews with about 120 people all across the kingdom. And for sort of the more recent, um, sort of, I suppose, from about sort of 10 years ago, uh, the sort of work, though, longer than that, actually, that I've done sort of with use. Um, yes, I... I do use surveys uh, from time to time, written surveys in Arabic, but actually I only use those 
uh, to support my main methodology, which is either one-to-one -one interviews or more often than not focus groups. So for example, being young male in Saudi, I did 55 focus groups all over the kingdom with people from you know all walks of life, all constituencies. Um, and my focus, when I do my focus groups, I don't do them in an academic focus group setting. You know, I go to them, we sit in the Istiraha, we go to the desert, we sit on the beach, we sit in the park, we sit in the coffee shop, wherever they would normally be. Uh, and actually having the sort of conversations that they would normally be having anyway. Yes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't record. Uh, I never record anything because that automatically changes the, the dynamic. You know, uh, so I, I just take copious notes <laughs> from, the, <laughs> from these focus groups and I end up with 90,000 words of notes um, wow. from 50 focus groups, which, of course, turned into the book. So, you know, I, I understand that, that, that it's really, you know, it's so important to have these personal connections, to sit and talk to people, because actually that's that's actually how people are, are you know, are much more comfortable. And in a focus group, um, <clears throat> having these very informal discussion focus groups, you know, it allows for disagreement. It allows for contradictions. It allows for nuance. It allows for gray areas to emerge. Um, because I, you know, we here in Saudi Arabia are in the midst of this transition at the moment. It's still ongoing. And transitions by their very nature are messy and uneven and they go forward, they go backwards or here being Saudi Arabia, they go sideways, they go diagonally, whatever. And, you know, we, it, you, you can't put things into sort of neat little boxes and say, you know, this is this and this is this. There, there, there are complexities, there are contradictions, there is this nuance and everything. And, you know, to get to the, to try and capture that, you need to sit to talk to people. You need to understand what their perceptions are, what their concerns are, what their aspirations are, what maybe they don't understand as well. Uh, maybe what, what they haven't even thought about sometimes. And you can only really do that, I find, here in the kingdom, in, in, in those sort of informal uh, settings. Um, I, you know, I, I think when it comes to methodology, I'm uh, research methodology, you know, you don't try and force your research methodology onto a particular group or a particular context. Rather, you adapt yourself to the context that you're operating in. And, you know, uh, I, that's how, I, and I, you know, that's what I do. And that's how I get the results that I get a lot of the time. And, and if I, as I say, if I do do something like a survey, I simply do that as a way of supporting what my qualitative research is telling me. Mm -hmm. This, <laughs> I've always been fascinated um, by Saudi Arabia because of uh, this sort of one-of-a-kind, extraordinary experiment of, of trying to transition from traditional to modern while, while uh, remaining authentic and retaining important, important uh, traditions that people feel strongly about and want to continue. So even, even uh, without Vision 2030, Saudi Arabia would be fascinating. Yes. But, but now you have this overlay of mm. the, that uh, the, the King Salman and the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman have brought into play beginning in, in April 2016. Mm. That uh, we've watched from day one, even before it came in. We remember the McKinsey reports coming out in late December 2015. You know, this is what's coming and that sort of thing. 
and we've seen it build momentum. We've seen skepticism. We've seen uh, we've seen where we now to a point where we've seen real change, fundamental uh, transformation at the at the granular level. Mm-hmm. And as you say, affecting no no demographic more than youth. What are you seeing? This is I think this is something that really infuses your work is that Division Twenty Thirty and and youth. Well, I mean, Vision 2030 was in many ways a response to what was already happening bottom up. I mean, the changes were already ongoing. Uh, and a lot of the catalyst for that, of course, was in particular the 2014 oil crash, you know, which had enormous impact on, for example, the employment market in Saudi Arabia. You know, so I used to work at, you know, King Fahad University of Petroleum and Minerals at that time. Pre-2014, the graduates who, of course, are best in the kingdom, you know, they were getting, you know, six, seven job offers, you know, and then that happened and that went to none overnight almost. So, so, and that changed, you know, that changed, that started to change the mentalities and started to change the conversation and the discourse. And also in terms of, you know, the entertainment side and what have you, I mean, as you know, there was nothing uh, before or, or hardly anything. But of course, young people being young people and lots of very smart entrepreneurial aspirational young people like the kingdom has you know they were sort of starting you know they were making their own things up you know they were looking at the official what was officially there and saying well you know they're not doing anything for us so we'll just go ahead and do it ourselves and that's what they were doing so you know i i I could see that you know the combination of those two things was at some point going to have to force something somewhere so long time before vision 2030 i remember saying to somebody very high up you know he was telling me that you know there were going to be this pro these programs because i was asking him about he said to me what are the three most important things in saudi arabia in your opinion i said that's easy use 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 and um you know he said oh but we've got this program we've got this and we're going to do this and we're going to do this and i said i had to stop him and i said look it's as though we're on a train station at the moment and the train that you're talking about use has gone it's <laughs> gone you know and it's up to you to catch up with them not the other way around you know no. and then you add to that of course the 2009 sort of social media revolution and how that you know the fact that you know young saudis are you know online 24 7 as you know with three four smartphones and what have you so all of this is sort of building pressure if you like and so you know vision 2030 was was a you know was sort of replying to this was responding to this and and i and, and you knew that something like that had to happen so when i was i was in riyadh at the time watching when his royal highness made the announcement in april 2016 sitting with young saudis of course to see how they responded to this and of course you know they were incredibly excited because all of a sudden you know somebody was actually talking to them about what they wanted to hear and, and somebody you know who wasn't 80 you know <laughs> <laughs> which was which was a which was an, which was a huge huge change and I think in terms of the vision, I mean, there's a lot, of, as you said, there's been a lot of skepticism and there's been a lot of criticism and what have you. Um, and, you know, I frequently, if I'm outside the kingdom, you know, I have people talking to me about this and they will say to me, well, what about this program? Do you think it's going to succeed? And what about this? Is it going to succeed? And is this part of the vision going to succeed, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, my response to them is that actually you've got the wrong end of the stick here, because what you're talking about are specific national transformation program projects. You're not talking about the vision. The vision 
is precisely that, a vision, and it's intangible, yes? And therefore, if you look at Saudi Arabia today, and you ask yourself, has the vision succeeded? The answer is yes, it has already succeeded because it's changed this. It's changed the way that young people think. It's changed the way that young people see their futures, uh, how they see opportunities, how they see careers, um, how they see that you know, living their lives. I mean, and that's a, a just an enormous change. I mean, I was with some of the students I taught at King Fahad University of Petroleum a couple of months ago, and I keep up with you know hundreds and hundreds of my former students, and a lot of them are in Riyadh, of course, now. And we were talking about when I taught them in 2013, and uh, you know they were saying to me, they were saying, yes, back then, you know our lives were pretty much set. It was, you know, graduate, join a Ramco, retire, die, you know? <laughs> and, <laughs> and whilst that's, whilst that's, you know, there's a joke, there's a lot of truth in that, you know? Especially, Whereas, especially coming out of KFUPM, yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. Whereas now, you know, there's, in, you know, there's so many other opportunities. There's so many different types of things they can do. I mean, every single young Saudi I know seems to have some sort of startup, whether it's a coffee shop, whether it's selling something online, along with their full-time job, you know, uh, whether it's a juice bar, I don't know. I mean, and this is, you know, this is a huge, huge change. Um, and talk with this same group of students as well, um, who I met who now work for STC and PIF and all of these places. And, um, you know, I said to them, I said, you know, when you studied with me in 2013, we had three classes of, you know, 45 students, whatever. And I said, then in 2013, out of those three classes, you know, the 120 odd students, how many students either had a part-time job or volunteered? And they said, well, probably nobody. One, two, maybe, you know? I said, well, today, if you looked at that sort of same number, how many would have a part-time job or volunteer? 70%, 80%, you know, that's a massive change in, in attitudes and, and, and mentality. And, and, you know, and a part-time job might just be working as a cleaning driver for a couple of hours, you know, whatever. But, but you know, this is, this, is, this is what we've seen happen. And, and you know, in a society where, as I said, you know, the very sort of, you know, sort of a community society where people are, you know, always in groups and always talking, you know, then obviously, you know, you used to get sort of Ahmed and Abdullah sort of saying, oh, well, you know, we just started a food truck or we just started volunteering at MISC or, you know, we're doing this or what have you. And of course, you know, then the others in the group say, oh, yeah, you know, that sounds like fun. You know, why don't mm -hmm. we do that? You know, and of course, that not just sounds like fun, but it also sounds like a good opportunity to, you know, meet certain people that we wouldn't have otherwise. <laughs> Anyone, you know? Yeah, well, we absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So, <clears throat> so, and so, you know, the mentalities have changed. The ways of thinking about things have changed. And I think, particularly when you're looking at the sort of the socio-economic sphere, you know, the, the the huge changes that have happened there in terms of how people think about employment, how people think about careers, you know, um, socio-cultural. I think is quite. Different at times but but yes i mean it, it, it's been something of a revolution actually and you know i work now with at king you know king Faisal center for research and islamic studies you know we have lots of very bright 
uh, young female researchers, uh, junior researchers who I work with on a daily basis, you know, who come to my office for advice and things like this. And, you know, there was a time when I would have been arrested if that had happened. Yes. Yes. Hey. So you know, the first seven years I was here, I never spoke to a Saudi woman. You know, so, you know, these are these are really huge changes, seismic changes, but 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 these are really positive changes. And I remember last Ramadan um, when the Crown Prince gave his uh, interview um, on Ratana in Arabic. Um, it was at 11 p.m. in the evening, which, of course, was perfect time in Ramadan. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, very interesting because on Tahrir Street, you know, all the coffee shops rammed full of people and, you know, the football was on and then they they turned it over to watch the Crown Prince give his interview. And of course, it was fascinating because he talked about, you know, predominantly about the cost of living and employment, EAT and these sort of low political things. But I actually went to my office because our junior researchers were, because it was Ramadan, they were working in the evenings rather than the day. And one of the female junior researchers came into my office and said, oh, Dr. Mark, are, are you in for the whole evening? And I said, no, unfortunately, I'm actually off to get a vaccination this evening. But she said, because she said, we, meaning the, the, the young female employees, whether they work in public relations, whether they're researchers or what have you, had arranged to sort of have a sort of mini party in one of the meeting rooms to watch the Crown Prince's interview. And I thought, there you go. There's oh my. Your There's your video. <clears throat> yeah. Just extraordinary. And and to, to thank you, Mark. I mean, that's really exciting to hear someone who's 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 witnessing this firsthand and, and paying such close attention. I agree with you and, and you can, we often refer to November 2014 and that OPEC meeting when, when essentially Saudi Arabia it became very clear that Saudi Arabia had to change its course. and uh, But as you say, it was being pulled along by forces already in train. And mm. uh, and let me get, you, you mentioned something, and, and, and maybe if you can uh, untangle a little bit. You said the difference between socioeconomic and sociocultural. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that I, I, I think Saudi Arabia's core identity narrative in other words, Islam and family, uh, are still right at the center of, of, of life in the kingdom, are still, you know, are still essentially what, what it means to be somebody from this country. And, you know, to what extent since 2016, since the launch of the vision, have we seen sort of fundamental change there? Well, I don't think we have. I think those have remained constant, you know. Um, and when I say Islam here, I'm talking not about religion, I'm talking about faith. You know, I'm talking about people's, you know, people's faith, their relationship with, 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 with Allah, with God, with Islam, you know. And I, you know, has that changed? No. You know, has the role of the family fundamentally changed? No, I don't think so. I, do, I, I certainly don't see it in my, in my, my daily life. Um, unless I'm traveling with Saudi friends on a Friday, maybe we're going on a trip or something, um, I never see any Saudi friend ever between 11 a.m. and 4 or 5 p.m. on a Friday. Never. Never. Mm. Because you don't do that. So I think, you know, I think there are, I think there are, there are those fundamental core identity narratives within that sort of sociocultural identity realm 
that 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 remain constant. Whereas a lot of the socioeconomic changes, you know, we we're, we're seeing you know rapid changes and huge changes, and and like I said, you know, changes that we I never envisaged seeing. And I think sometimes we have to sort of maybe differentiate between you know where things are happening. Mm. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but if you were if you're Saudi brain trust, you're the Al Saud and you're the, you're the government. Isn't that exactly the, the balance you want to achieve? Yes, of course it is. I mean, and this is very important because yeah. this is, this is it's incredibly important. You've got to, you know, you need to maintain what it is that makes the kingdom the kingdom. You need to maintain, you know, this is, and because this is also incredibly important to individuals, to families, to tribes, to, you know, to regions, whatever. Yes, absolutely. You, you know, you, you know, people talk about when they talk about Riyadh, Riyadh season and they sort of talk about Boulevard or, you know, you know, sort of those types of Riyadh season events, if you like, you know, you don't get as many people talking about Zaman village. Yes. Mm -hmm. And yet Zaman the heritage part and yet on the several times that I went there it was packed absolutely packed you know for poetry recitals for traditional music and things like this and that's the same with um similar events that I've been to all around the kingdom whether it, I went to the Amazer Spring Flower Festival for example and you know I think it is very important because you you know you also want to make sure that you 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 know you that, that these things that are compatible with you know people's own sense of their identity of who they are um and compatible with 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 with, with people's heritage with people's yeah with people's understanding of themselves very very you know a little sidebar we covered we did we covered founding day and the origins yeah. of founding day the philosophy yeah. behind founding day and the actual implementation of founding day but a little sidebar one, one of the interesting things was it really looked like in the celebrations People really enjoyed coming out in traditional yes. garb. You know, yes, they were absolutely. there was a whole array. It was like a fashion show of 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 women and men dressed as their you know their great 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 grandparents were dressed. Yeah. And my WhatsApp was just going crazy all day long with everybody sending me photographs of themselves dressed. Up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this is this is me and my family, and you know, don't you having a party today where we're all dressing up all 350 of us you know um and yes no very much and it, and i think it was what was fascinating about that as well was it it it, it was an opportunity that so many people seem to enjoy to celebrate not just you know to celebrate their family history their tribal history their origins and hence mm -hmm. hence the costumes and things like that and you know, people at Boulevard dressed as you know, you know, flower men from Jizan and everything. Right. You know, you know, I mean, it was. I mean, I thought it was great. I thought it was lovely, and because you know that. I mean, I think when people talk about Saudi Arabia outside the kingdom, or when Saudi Arabia is you know discussed, I mean, it tends to be discussed in a very sort of general way. It tends to be treated as though it's this one huge homogenous society, and. You know, people talk about Saudi women, you know, as though they're one great big group that goes everywhere together, you know, and, uh, and yeah, actually, you know, this, this, is a, 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 this is a very, very diverse kingdom um, in terms of its population, in terms of, you know, the geography, in terms of the heritage, and of course there are things that, that connect everybody, but you also have, you know, these wonderful um, 
know, sort of individual uh, sort of cultural heritages around the kingdom. And I think, you know, celebrating that is, 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 is lovely and it's very important. And, uh, and, and founding day from that point of view was, was very interesting because it actually highlighted some of this as well, which uh, was very enjoyable. And it was, it was nice to see that it, it was, you know, that it was, it was not just celebrated here, but it was noticed as well outside the kingdom. Well, we found it, it's, it, 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 as I said, Saudi Arabia is a constant fascination. It's an ongoing experiment. And, and it, it, you know, it, it was just it's so interesting in terms of establishing an, a, a, a national myth. And this is not a derogatory thing, but, you know, a, a narrative for a country. And you yes. see, as you say, constantly, you said it's a young country, even though it has origins going way back. But, you know, it, it's, it is a young country. But uh, introducing and reinforcing this narrative, which... Uh, substantiates going forward as well what Saudi Arabia wants to see changed and, and what they want to achieve. Let mm. me, uh, Mark, if I can uh, di just go off on a little tangent. One of the things, speaking to perceptions from the West, you're exactly right. You know, the, the, and this one of the, our purposes of this show is to try and unpack things and introduce a little nuance and context yeah. because it's almost like a, a, a reaction, you know, people in the West don't want anything nuanced. They want it, you know, neom is this and oil policy is this and so on and so forth. Um, and I, but I see this a little bit, you know, this recent interview that the, the Crown Pitch did with The Atlantic. And and I see the titles about what it was. But if you read the transcript of the whole, the whole interview, it's quite fascinating, and, and it, part of that discussion uh, is something that I think is important going on in Saudi Arabia and speaks to what you're talking about, the, the faith and, 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 and uh, Saudi's commitment to maintaining these traditions and how they feel about their faith. But his discussion about what they want to see in terms of reorienting in terms of Islam, you know, a, 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 not a moderate Islam. He said, do not use that term. But, you know, the, 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 the type of Islam that uh, prevailed in Saudi Arabia traditionally. Mm. Uh, and does this resonate with, with Saudi youth? Yes, I mean, of course it does. I mean, it resonates in terms of, you know, as I say, I mean, I always used to teach my students you know, the difference between religion and faith, you know, the fact that, you know, religion is the sort of, you know, the, the, the political side, if you like. So I always used to teach them that. And of course, you know, what you see, you know, Saudi Arabia is without a doubt, uh, in my opinion, a much happier place today in general, you know, in terms of when you go out, because you don't have this sort of worry about having to look over your shoulder all the time as you used to have to in the past, you know. Yeah. You're, you're not, you know, you're not sort of being... You know, you haven't got people sort of hectoring you about, you know, you've got to go and pray, you've got to do this or what have you, which, of course, people resented because, you know, it's like, you don't need to tell me to go and do that because it's something that I do anyway. Yes. So, so no, um, you know, people, you know, I, th I think that sort of that pressure that was taken away was definitely welcomed. Um, but again, you know, it, it hasn't altered people's own faith, you know, because that that's been constant, um, you know, throughout the time that I've been here, and it's it's is constant with all the friends that I'm with, you know, all my Saudi friends. So, so no, I mean, I I, I think I I think that is something that that people feel, you know, has been is an improvement because it's 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 uh, it sort of made the situation sort of more relaxed, and it sort of means that you know you haven't got 
that sort of, you know, as I say, people looking over your shoulder, as it were. Mm. Right. Mm. Um, I, I don't, I, Lucian. I don't want to preempt you because you, we were talking about questions beforehand, and Lucian made this very good point about the uh, then King Abdullah scholarships, now custodian yes. of two holy mosques. And can, should I go ahead, Lucian? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. And <clears throat> we've always commented when this was introduced in '05, and we've worked with the Saudi Cultural Mission here, and we we sort of have followed the program. We've always commented it is one of the most creative. And, yes. subverse, and subversive yes. <laughs> programs, you yes. know, ever introduced by a country. Yes. Uh, uh, you know, bringing this, this hundreds of thousands of students, both to the U.S. and elsewhere across the globe, and having them study and learn and, and create yes. affinities in, in yes. Western countries, and then come back to Saudi Arabia. Just an extraordinary experiment, extraordinary initiative. Have you seen the same thing? Oh, gosh, yes, absolutely. So I remember going to a uh, seminar in London many years ago. I think it was when King Abdullah uh, was in London for the G20. And uh, the then British ambassador to Saudi Arabia was there, along with um, all the past British ambassadors to Saudi Arabia. And there was talking, obviously, about the King Abdullah scholarship program. And the point was made then that, of course, at, in Saudi Arabia at, the, at that time, you had the top, you had the bottom, but you didn't really have any sort of intermediate stratum. You know, it was non-existent. Well, it exists today, you know, and many people, you know, over the years would sort of talk to me about the King Abdullah Scholarship Program and sort of say, well, you know, what's happening? Is anything happening? You know, whatever. And I always used to say to them, wait, wait, you know. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> These people have got to graduate, they've got to return, and of course the fascinating thing about this is that the vast majority of them all do come back, you know, and always have done, and then they have to start feeding into the system and then start sort of rising up through the system. Well, this is happening. Now, you know, when I first started at KFUPM, there were not many Saudi assisted professors. There are tons now. You know, and it's the same at King Saud or whatever university you go to. You go to the ministries. You know, I sometimes go to some of these major ministries and I'm walking around the building thinking, well, I must be the oldest person here. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, the fact that also 50% are women as well, you know, and so, you know, so, so they, you know, and now, you, you know, the fact that so many of these people are now in decision-making positions, um, not just in public sector, obviously, but also in the private sector as well. Um, I mean, yes, I mean, it, 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 it's been, a, I mean, in my opinion, it's been a huge success because it created that intermediate stratum and it created, you know, a whole generation or a couple of generations of Saudis who, who the government has been able to benefit from. Because at the end of the day, you know, one of, you know, I've always said this, you know, Saudi Arabia's greatest asset is not oil, it's its people. You know, it's, it's young people. Think about, you know, how much would Japan like to have Saudi Arabia's population huh. or some of or some of the European countries? Well, exactly. Yeah. You know, exactly. So, you know, and, and I think you have to we have to point out as well that it wasn't just the King Abdullah scholarship program. You know, it was also the money that was spent on, you know, sort of the domestic education right. as well. The Princess Nora University, KAUST, um, places like KFUPM, uh, vocational colleges, I mean, what have you, you know, the, the enormous expenditure on education right across the board. Of course, again, it's been uneven and, you know, we can debate about what educational reforms have worked and, and you know, whether, 
you know, the ongoing reforms are successful or not, because it's it's always been a very you know contentious topic. But without a doubt, the sort of the combination of this has created this young, aspirational, by and large, you know, well-educated population. I mean, it's uh, you know, it's extraordinary. I mean, I, I mean, I taught for thirty years, um, all of, not just here, but in many other countries around the world, uh, and. The, the best students I ever, 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 ever had were the students at King Fahad University of Petroleum. And I had thousands of them. And they were, you know, 10% of them were exceptional, you know, and, and are now in quite major decision-making positions, a lot of them. So, I mean, that this, that, you know, the country had and has so much potential. And so King Abdullah was, you know, you know, he, he was absolutely right to realize that, you know, you had to tap into this potential. You have to, you know, give it direction. You have to, I mean, it was, it was uh, extremely successful. Uh. Well, maybe this doesn't, you, we can't go back this far, but the, when we, we cover all the, the economic diversification efforts and, and when you when you talk about Lucid, you know, creating a manufacturing plant in, in uh, King Abdullah Economic City, you talk about, um, you know, growing the military uh, you know, in, industrial base. Talk about you know two hundred thousand jobs from you know, mining and minerals and that sort of thing. These are these are prospective jobs for Saudis primarily. And this is maybe where your admonitions they say wait 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 comes into place. Has the educational system? I'm talking I'm talking not at KFUPM level, which is the high flyers. Yes. You know, but but K through twelve and 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 maybe vocational has has that. How long will it take for that to start turning out really capable and employee, employable young Saudis? I, I, it already is. Um, and I know this from a fact from, you know, various companies that I've talked to for many, many years who will tell you, for example, who employ technicians and things like this, who will tell you, you know, 10, 15 years ago, they wouldn't dream of employing Saudi technicians. And now they say our best technicians are young Saudis, you know. Mm. I mean, so it's already happening. Um, of course, there is still a long way to go um, because you simply cannot do these things overnight. You know, they do take time. You have to change the way people think. You have to change people's, you know, attitudes to employment, you know, the types of jobs that Saudis were willing to do and things like that, because we went through that period where, you know, it was always, oh, no, Saudis don't do certain jobs, but that's changing very much. So, no, I mean, I, you know, I, I do, you know, there, you know, there are there are a lot of challenges. There are going to be bumps in the roads, and they go, there are going to be obstacles. But you know, by and large, I think they can be overcome. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, it does. You're, you're absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, whenever you look at these problems, when you look at these challenges, or, you know, you, you, and you and you sort of then start stepping back, then yes, it it goes back to education without a doubt. And I think a lot of the you know, you it, it's it's no good introducing this in tertiary education. It needs to come much much further in advance. Right. Mm. And of course, one of the problems that that they've had in Saudi Arabia for many for a long time, which is acknowledged and discussed, is the fact that all of these students would sort of you know go through the education system, and then those that were going to go into tertiary education, male and female, would end up spending a year in orientation before they actually started their university program mm -hmm. because they 
do the orientation because they wouldn't be, they didn't do it, they wouldn't actually be ready to go into university. And of course, you know, that's ridiculous. Um, and that's been, you know, that's acknowledged here, you know, within the education ministry and everything that that's ridiculous. You know, you, you, you can't have that anymore. And the orientation programs and things like that need to become things of the past. Um, no, so, you know, there are, you know, there's no doubt that, 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 that a great many challenges remain. Um, but, you know, I think, you know, going back to what you just said about the introduction of the King Abdullah Scholarship Programme or what I just said about going to that seminar in 2008, and then if you map how things have changed since then to now, I mean, it's, in, it's actually an enormous change in really a relatively short space of time. Mm, mm. I just, I'm always, stunned and amazed when people uh, try and use the metric of, uh, you know, uh, so for example, you know, well, the Aramco IPO didn't reach $2 trillion. It wasn't a success. There's no bearing on what exactly that was about. No. Same thing, just as you referred earlier, you know, the transitions, you know, they do have all these metrics, all these KPIs, <laughs> all these, this sort of thing, and, and it's very aspirational, but that's not the point. No. Uh, and I think you captured it brilliantly when you when you talked about you know what it's done to us you know yeah. the, the Saudi and, mind. And 2030 is not the point, right? You know, 20, it's a date, and it's just a date and a branding. That's you know that's what it is. It's it's branding. You know, mm -hmm. uh, but, but you know this you know this this isn't going to suddenly all stop in 2030. <laughs> <laughs> so, and you know, not everything you know, and I think you know not everything's going to succeed, and some things will succeed spectacularly well. Some things maybe moderately, some things won't. But you know, I've heard you know again. I remember going to the Miss Global Forum a couple of years ago, where there were several ministers um, there who were sort of having a sort of conversation between themselves in the audience and on the stage about all of this which was fascinating and it was really interesting to hear them say you know actually we understand that some of this is trial and error you know because we haven't actually done this before you know you know and, and you know, so therefore not everything is going to go right necessarily because because it, it, a lot of it's new I'm a, I'm, I, we're huge fans of Dr. Majid Al-Kasabi, who's uh, the Minister of Commerce and also Acting Minister what? of Media. But in, in, in general, just an all-round tremendous yeah. individual. But yeah, he's the minister's having that conversation. I, I'm yes. not surprised at all. He came uh, and, mm -hmm. and visited, I don't know, this was probably 2017, 2018 or whatever. And, and was, mm -hmm. we, he was over speaking at the Center for Strategic International Studies, and we had helped arrange that. And he was, and I was so, it was so refreshing and so necessary saying, look, this isn't a straight line. This is, yes, this is, this is two steps up and one step back. And, um, and I think people need to understand that. So, it, yeah. you know, Dr. Majid has always been very straightforward about that. Yeah. Cause that's the kind of guy he is. Yeah. Um, well, this is Saudi Arabia, two steps forward, two steps sideways. <laughs> <laughs> and by, by the way, it makes perfect sense to everybody. Why? Yeah. Mm -hmm. but, you, you know, know Exactly. I mean, this is. I mean, as I said, this is this is you know the nature of a of a transition, and you you're going to, you know, it's it's because you're dealing with people, you know. So things are going to be uneven, and things are going to, you know, be different, and maybe not maybe not work out the way that you necessarily think they are. I mean, you know, I was talking to some sort of quite senior policymakers not that long ago. And I said, you know, what's, I think sometimes what people forget and maybe they should be thinking about a little bit more is that policies can be formulated 
and they can be implemented. And actually, it might be a very good policy. It might be something that's very benefit beneficial. But it doesn't mean that societies or communities in the kingdom necessarily interpret them the way they were meant to be interpreted. You know, and and you know, and that's something that we sort of see happening as well, where you know, various groups of people, the kids say, "Oh yeah, this is great." And we're going to do this, but that's it's not necessarily what was planned. What <laughs> you know, <laughs> as I as I as I've always said, it's it's an experiment, and it gets messy. But uh... it is it, exactly it is an experiment, and experiments are always messy. And and I think as well when you have so much happening on so many different levels simultaneously. You know that you you know <laughs> you know it is difficult sometimes to keep track of what's going on, but but it necessarily you know that's going to happen, and you know we're all quite glad actually that Ramadan is coming up in a couple of weeks' time because it's sort of going to be sort of an opportunity to just sort of <laughs> let everything settle for a little while. You know? <laughs> and it, it'll be the the first normal Ramadan in three years. Mm -hmm. Yes, I mean I mean last Ramadan was reasonably normal um was yeah but yes so i think everybody's sort of looking forward to that and, yeah. and obviously you know like everywhere in the world i mean you know everybody's obviously very relieved that we're we seem to be sort of transitioning out of the worst of COVID. Yeah. a great day for everybody everywhere yes mm. yeah alhamdulillah yeah <laughs> mark i've got a question so i think um I think one thing that is difficult for us here in the United States, around the world, people looking at Saudi Arabia from the outside is the lack of public polling. And it's just, there just really isn't a lot of it, but you are doing it really in, um, in a focused yeah. way. I mean, with focus groups, you're talking to young Saudis all the time. Um, yeah. and you've probably talked to hundreds for your previous book and, and you're a professor. Um, thousands. Yes. is there thousands, I is there a, is there, a, is there something that you can take um, when you talk to these young Saudis, one overarching thing that they want, um, that they agree on, that they all sort of see as um, important for their future? Uh, yes, to be engaged, to be consulted, to be able to participate. You know, um, they have opinions uh, and that doesn't matter, you know, it doesn't matter whether you are a KFUPM <coughs> chemical engineering graduate or whether you're a Toyota car salesman in Onesa or whether you are <coughs> just a National Guard soldier somewhere. <coughs> they have opinions, you know, and they, they want to be listened to. Uh, want to, <coughs> they want to feel that they matter and they want to feel that they can be engaged. And, you know, people often ask me, what is the, you know, the biggest change that I've seen, you know, since I first came in January, 2001. And that's an easy question to answer. It's, it's the desire to engage. That it's, it's huge. And so, no, um, the, and, and I think, and that's obviously that plays very much to my benefit because with the type of research that I'm doing which is very focused on young people and you know the socioeconomic issues that affect young people what have you so you know I, I find it very easy to do the type of research that I do because they want to talk about it you know they, they want to sit down and have these conversations and in fact you know I have these conversations 
daily with the young people I work with, or certainly several times a week when we go out for dinner with various people. And, you know, and we always, we're having these conversations all the time, um, which of course is also very healthy in my opinion. Uh, and it's very encouraging uh, to see that, you know, there is a lot of optimism amongst these young people. There is a lot of desire to engage, to participate, to to contribute, whether that's to their own personal development or to their, you know, their, the, for the benefit of their family or whether their community or on a larger scale, you know, the country or, or the, the company they're working for. You know, that's that's something that's, that's very positive. But I think that there is an issue that, that that's very important that's linked to this. Um, and... You know, there is at times a lack of mentoring, um, which is actually very, very necessary. I mean, one thing I noticed with you know, the large numbers of young people that I've engaged with over the years is that many of them, the majority of them, I would say, want to be mentored, even though they don't know they do, you know, because they're 18, 19, 20, So I think that that's something that's lacking still at a certain to a certain degree that needs to be improved. And the other thing linked to that that needs to be improved is career guidance, which is a lot of the time is non-existent. You know, so, you know, uh, it's not, you know, some, it's not necessarily that Saudis, young Saudis don't want to do that job. It's, they don't even know that job exists. Mm -hmm. uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, and oh, nobody's ever told them about working in this sector or that sector or what that could be. So I think, Going back to the education question we were just talking about before, I think, you know, this is something that needs to be incorporated, again, not in tertiary education, but in secondary education, you know, which is more mentoring, more career guidance, a lot more information about the jobs of the future, what is going to be available, not now, but what is going to be available in a decade or something like this. Uh, and I think that's that's critical given again the demographics. But 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 you know the, the desire to engage is 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 there. And that's it's 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 exciting and it's positive and um it, it's it's great fun as well. You know? It's fascinating to hear those descriptions. Um you know, because because the rest of the world looks at Saudis sort of as an otherness, you know, a, a strangeness, uh, inaccessibility. Um, and then when you talk about their youth being, you know, seeking to be engaged and 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 consulted and participate, have their opinions, and then the very very familiar needing mentoring but not quite really knowing how to get it. They sound like kids, youth, all over the world. Well, if you read the introduction to being young male in Saudi, you know, one of the things I stress in the introduction is that these young men's concerns are no different from young men's concerns all over the world. You know, getting a job, you know, having enough money to buy a house, to get married, things like this. You know, you know, they, they, you know, they, it, it's it's universal. A lot of these things are universal. And I think it's very you know, of course, the context is different, of course, but I think it's very important to get that message across to sort of get try and get rid of this, as you say, this sort of otherness, the sort of, you know, Saudi Arabia, this very strange place over there, you know, um, mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, the kingdom is an incredibly important country uh, where it's located, the home of Islam, you know, leader of the Arab world, all of these types of things and whatever, you know, whatever, however you look at it, it's an incredibly important country that, in my opinion, is only going to get more important into the future. And yet I talk to a lot of policymakers, say, for example, if I'm back in the United Kingdom, you know, I might be talking to a lot of policymakers and they know more about Belgium 
than they do about Saudi Arabia. No offense to Belgium. But actually, you know, you need to know more about this very dynamic country. You know. <laughs> Mark, you, you've offended Belgium, which is actually a very important EU country. I tend to offend Ghana for whatever reason. I don't know oh, why, because <laughs> I always say, you know, there's a reason we talk about Saudi Arabia. There's a reason we talk about the Saudi Arabia's on the front pages. There's a reason Saudi Arabia always ends up in the mix in so many yeah. different scenarios, as opposed to a place like Ghana. So anyway. <laughs> I, or Belgium. <laughs> or, or Belgium. <laughs> <laughs> Going on from here, we'll swap. You use Belgium. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, and, and, and I think we should probably close. But, Mark, I wanted to, to say, um, you know, when you talked about being young Saudi and male, one of the very endearing things you discussed was their curiosity with marriage. And, their, yes. it's, and, and I just thought it was, a, like I said, it was endearing. It's, it, was, it was very human. Yes. Yes. And also because, you know, until you're married in the kingdom, you're not really fully part of society <laughs> uh, uh, oh no you're not you know i mean it, it is it is a you know i mean during the pandemic you know in saudi arabia you know the main concern was sort of you know when can we get back to having weddings and going to wedding parties you know? <laughs> You know, what pubs are in the UK, you know. Um, so, um, so no, it, 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 you know, it, it, it's an incredibly important part of life. And so, you know, getting married is, and is, is, is just something that you have to do. And, and it's, it's, you know, family expectations and all of these types of things. So, so it, you know, it's no surprise that when you sit down with young men, you don't have to be writing a book, you know, but when you sit down with young men, you know, at some stage, you know, the conversation will turn to, you know, getting married um, because it's, it's, it's that sort of, it's that sort of milestone that, you know, when you get to a certain age, you know, it's, it's going to happen. But, you know, attitudes to, I mean, Pretty much everybody I know, um, and all the men I've been to, hundreds of weddings over the years. But you know, they're pretty much all traditional weddings. Um, people get married in the traditional way. I was at one just recently in Abu Alish, outside Jizan, um, and um, you know, people get married in the traditional way because, again, it all goes back to these powerful identity narratives, the sense mm -hmm. of. You know, this is what we do, and and the sense of the importance of family and all of this, um, and um, I think sometimes when we talk about Saudi Arabia, we we tend to talk about change too much at the moment, and actually we shouldn't be talking about change. We should be talking about things adapting, and what this is what we see, for example, with marriage. You know, whereas the traditional way of marriage is still prevalent, but it's adapting in that now you know people can get to know each other you know, before they get married to find out whether they're compatible or not compatible, you know, and this is very much now part of how things are done. Yes. Um, but, but, you know, weddings are, you know, an incredibly important part of, of Saudi social life as anybody who knows the kingdom uh, will tell you. Uh, and depending on where you go in the kingdom, of course, you know, goes to some pretty spectacular weddings. As well. <laughs> We've been talking to the brilliant Dr. Mark Thompson. Follow him on Twitter uh, at ThompsonMarkC. He's got a new book coming out as well. Mark, thank you so much for joining us. This was really fascinating. Oh, no, thank you very much. Um, I really appreciate having the opportunity.